You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Gold, uh, who's Chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, UNMC. He took on that position in 2014, as well as Vice President of the University of Nebraska System. In July of 2021, he was also named as Provost Executive Vice President of the University of Nebraska System. And for a period of four years, also was dual-headed and served as Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Jeff, thanks so much for coming and being with us today. It's great to have you with us. Well, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to join you, and I look forward to our conversation. Jeff is a specialist in adult and pediatric cardiac surgery, and prior to coming to Nebraska, held leadership positions at the University of Toledo Academic Clinical Health Sciences, as well as Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Let me first ask you just a personal note, Jeff, a bit about your own personal history and the arc of your career. Sketch for us briefly, how did you go from growing up in New York, your earlier early career in pediatric thoracic heart surgery, and from there into ad- administration leadership in Toledo and then, and then into Nebraska? Sure. Well, it's, you know, as you describe it, it is quite an arc because, uh, you know, I grew up in the inner city of New York and uh, product of the public school system and was able to obtain uh, uh, scholarship support to go to college. I ultimately went to engineering school at Cornell and from there med school and general surgery residency uh, and then thoracic surgery residency, both in New York and uh, in the Harvard system. And, uh, you know, really very fortunate to have been supported along the way by not only great mentors and inspirational leaders, but you know, through the private philanthropy of two great universities. And uh, without that, I, you know, I kind of doubt that I'd be uh, anywhere near uh, where I am now. And I, you know, of course, don't take that for granted. I spend most of my days trying to pay that back in some practical way that I can do it. So, uh, you know, I went from being a busy clinical cardiac surgeon at New York Prez and for a decade as a department chair and heart center director at Einstein to uh, incrementally step into uh, leadership roles. Initially uh, as a uh, program director and as department chair, and then from there to become a medical school dean, and from there to becoming a provost and then a university chancellor. Uh, And so it's really been a series of incremental steps, uh, you know, 25 years in the operating room every day, which you know, I think served as a great foundation to appreciate, you know, the impact that modern medicine has on quality of life and indeed the career trajectory of so many. You know, I've watched former patients grow into adulthood and have families of their own and graduate from college and achieve all kinds of success and get reminded every day of what the value proposition is of of the healthcare industry, as, uh, as I like to think about it. But I've made that transition because I think that over time, there's a tremendous amount of impact that an individual can have who has had the opportunity to live and grow in academic medicine. And at the same time, I've taken care of thousands and thousands of patients and families. Everybody's trajectory, everybody's arc is different, 
but mine has been one really of being inspired by great mentors. So I assume you've become a, a fully enthroned Nebraskan now that you're, uh, you've been there for almost a decade. And um, also I'd like to ask you, what is the most gratifying aspect of being in this biomedical administrative leadership role at a major research university? What is it that gives you the greatest gratification? Well, it's a combination of things. You know, we are a very mission-driven organization, and our mission uh, is to educate the next generation of health professions workforce to continue to do effective and highly relevant research, and of course, to provide world-class clinical care. So what motivates me is, for instance, I love commencement ceremonies where I get to shake hands with hundreds of graduates, you know, in an average commencement cycle, which for me would be about seven or eight events, I will probably shake hands between faculty and uh, families and most importantly, students with several thousand people. And to see the look in their eyes and the sense of satisfaction and know what they've attained, particularly in this, what we refer to as the COVID era of all of the achievements that they've made in spite of all these hardships. You know, when I see and read about our research programs and uh, and learn about some of the patents and corporate startups, the licenses for new drugs and medical devices that came from our faculty, you know, are incredibly inspiring. But I also still love to walk through our hospital system uh, and meet families and patients and get a sense of what we're doing to change the quality of people's lives. You know, I get tons of mail and people comment constantly, not just on the quality of the healthcare that they receive, but the caring. You know, we have a saying here, serious medicine, extraordinary care, we embody that. And a day doesn't go by that I don't run into some family in the hallway who stops me to tell me about how much caring has actually occurred for their loved ones uh, in our center. And, and it all comes together, you know, that's the kind of environment in, you, in which you want to educate and train the next generation where you want to be sure that you do responsible, thoughtful, and high-impact research, but you're also pushing back the frontiers of care and caring. So uh, I get inspired every day, Steve. You mentioned the past two years plus of COVID. I wanted to ask you about how you felt the university had coped in this period. This has been a, a period, of, obviously, for large public institutions. It's been a period of great stress and demand trying to keep the doors open and keep people safe. It's also been a period when some of the major public institutions in the United States have, have become incubators. They've been great innovators when it comes to communications, to testing, and a bunch of different elements of the, of the response. And I just wanted to ask you, when you look back, what were the major decision points? What were the things that could have been done better? What were the things that were breakthroughs in your view? Well, you know, we could spend hours talking about that, but uh, just start off at the 50,000 foot level. As we went into this, we were very clear that the safety and wellness of our faculty, students and staff and the communities that we serve had to be our North Star. We, if anything, decisions that we made, it was around the safety and health security of those that we serve. And we not only serve our local community here, but we are a very large referral center for all different types of tertiary and quaternary care. We have huge educational programs, over 52,000 students in the university system here, thousands of faculty and staff. 
And we went into this saying that every decision was going to be built around the safety of all of those individuals. Uh, at the same time, uh, because of our Global Center for Health Security, the work that we do around the outward facing aspects of this, which has everything to do from the technical aspects of high fidelity, high throughput testing to playbooks for everything from professional athletics, collegiate athletics, the meatpacking industry, the court system, and K-12 schools, higher education, et cetera, to creating weekly and frequently biweekly briefing sessions that involved a multi-state region, that involved the university systems, the K-12 systems, et cetera. We uh, entered into this in a very proactive way, saying that we were, one, going to stay completely scientifically based. Two, we were going to contribute to the science uh, using all the expertise that we had. And three, we're going to be open and transparent, not just with our stakeholder communities, but with the media. I mean, just to give you a rough idea, in the first year of the pandemic, we exceeded $5 billion of earned media, both print and broadcast media. And that's because we became uh, very rapidly a trusted source. And that, of course, goes back to the days of the Ebola virus pandemic and uh, a whole amount of history that really catapulted us into the forefront around health security, particularly in the area of highly infectious agents. Thank you. The university, uh, the UNMC, University of Nebraska Medical Center, you know, it's become established over the last 20 years plus as really a major center, diversified center of health security capacities in the country. And I'm not sure that that story is very well understood outside of sort of expert circles. Um, and I'd like you to sort of walk us through the, how did this happen? I know you had a Nebraska public health lab established late nineties, 9-11 got the university into the bioterror preparedness world. You, 0405, the biocontainment unit established. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. It seemed to be a big moment. 2014 Ebola, when I was working on Ebola, I was reading about people who were infected or exposed going to Nebraska as one of those choice places around the country. There are only a handful, three or four that were the sites where those who were coming back were going and it put a spotlight and people are like, oh my, there's something going on there that would warrant all of this, just like Emory or NIH and elsewhere with these capacities. And as you referenced you now have this Global Center for Health Security established in 2017, so prior to COVID, but you've expanded your capacities even more under COVID. Can you just walk us through how this happened and what were the big decision points and how was it that Nebraska sort of found itself in this lead position? Well, I would say, Steve, it was fairly intentional. You know, as you say, going back to the 90s, the decision was made that the state public health lab would be within our facilities so that our faculty and our staff and our graduate students, et cetera, could not only learn from it, but participate and partner with the state of Nebraska and in a multi-state region. But then, you know, shortly after 9-11, you know, think back to the anthrax scares, think back to SARS, there was a clear need uh, established here that biocontainment could become a reality. Of course, we do research with special pathogens here and having capability to, you know, heaven forbid, need to care for staff or community members. 
or, you know, we're very close proximity to United States Strategic Command, and if there needed to be uh, capabilities as a result of that. And so under the leadership of Dr. Philip Smith, who was the uh, division chief of infectious diseases here, a 10-bed biocontainment unit was constructed in a state-of-the-art way. And I think equally importantly to the facility construction was the establishment of a team of about 40 or 50 people who practiced, who rehearsed, who built protocols so that when and if there was an airborne infection or a droplet infection or a contact infection that needed true biocontainment, critical care, uh, diagnostics, et cetera, uh, that there would be a facility here to do it. Not totally dissimilar to what Emory did and not totally dissimilar to what happened at uh, USAMRID and ultimately got migrated to the National Institutes of Health. And that just became used on and off for high-risk exposures from other parts of the world. We get an anecdotal call from here and there. But, you know, in 2014, which was the year, by the way, that I started here, Ebola pandemic was raging in Western Africa. And the day came, you know, in uh, late summer, early fall, September 5, if I'm not mistaken, that we are actually called by the federal government, initially by the Department of State and then others, uh, to ask if we would help by repatriating an American physician who was doing volunteer work in Western Africa to be cared for who had a diagnosis of Ebola virus disease. And, uh, you know, I ne will never forget the day that we put our leadership team around a single table in our conference room here, everybody from our hospital president to our attorneys, to the infectious diseases team, to the critical care team, all of those. And we went around the table, you know, what's the risk benefit ratio? Should we do this, et cetera? And, you know, and all of the questions were asked, you know, what if the patient doesn't do well? What if one of our staff members gets infected? What if the community tells us, you know, we don't have confidence in you? But there was absolute unanimity that we had trained for this. We had the right facilities that we should go forward. And of course, uh, as history uh, goes, we did. We actually cared for not only several patients with active Ebola virus disease infection, but a good number of high-risk exposures uh, that ensued during that time period as well. And it underscored the fact that as a nation, we were ill-prepared for the consequences of a pandemic of that nature if it were to really have expanded significantly across the U.S. And that's what got us to partner with, uh, at that time, uh, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPER, uh, in HHS, that got us to partner with the Joint Command in the Pentagon, that got us to partner with uh, Homeland Security and the Veterans Administration, and to underscore the fact that if we could pull all of those organizations together with the private sector, we could create a capacity that did not exist in the U.S., and so we continued to work on that. The Global Center for Health Security was officially designated as a center of excellence by the Board of Regents in 2017, but the team had existed for almost 20 years. It was just a matter of formally pulling it together into a uh, what I would call an academic enterprise with a charge very clearly defined of education, research, and clinical care. And uh, the rest is history. I just want to interject one thought and a question. In 2015, I had the chance to travel to West Africa, early 15 during the Ebola outbreak. And then following that, we I participated in the Harvard London School review of the experience. 
international global experience on Ebola. And we uh, put together a documentary around how Ebola had been understood and acted upon in the United States. This documentary, a 30-minute documentary we put out called Epidemic of Fear, Ebola in America. And Dr. Brantley, the evangelical medical doctor who was medevac to Atlanta with a logistician, Nancy Whitebull, uh, we went and interviewed him in Fort Worth, and um, we talked to his boss at that time at Samaritan's Purse and the like. And one of the things that, one of the comments that was made by his boss at Samaritan's Purse was that in the conversations they had as he was being medevaced to Atlanta, Ken Isaacs, his boss said, do you know uh, the news coverage of your medevac to Atlanta on the internet had 1.9 billion views. In other words, an enormous portion of the world was paying attention to all of this happening. I expect that Nebraska experienced an enormous surge of attention, most of it positive, maybe not all of it positive, because it was a period of great fear and hysteria and some disinformation, not a small amount of disinformation. But nonetheless, it seemed to bring a lot of credit to the institutions that were able to demonstrate their ability to manage these dangerous pathogens and, and save the lives of these people. Well, you know, the, it's very well known publicly that Dr. Uh, Richard Sacra was the first individual who we repatriated from uh, Western Africa with Ebola virus disease. And uh, I will never forget that, you know, there was a time period that we were in the top 10 of Twitter feeds in the world as a result of doing that. And we had a very similar experience when we repatriated the infected patients off the Diamond Princess cruise line you know, with COVID-19. And uh, the world was really watching what happened to those individuals. You may also know we accepted a large cohort of individuals from Wuhan City, American citizens who fortunately were not infected, but we cohorted them and quarantined them here for a period of time. And again, the world was watching really carefully. And I would say the overwhelming majority of the feedback was quite positive. I mean, there was some concern about why us, why here, et cetera. But I would say 99% of it was congratulations, we're so proud of you. And then there was another very interesting piece, Steve, uh, went along the lines of, you know, it's God's work. Somebody needs to do it. And and, you know, when I got to meet with Dr. Brantley and when I got to meet with uh, Rick Sacra and these individuals, and we all met, by the way, at the White House when uh, President Obama uh, recognized the institutions and the individuals who did this it was an incredible event. But I remember the conversation really clearly that individuals from this country and other places around the world wouldn't put their life at risk in doing this kind of critically important volunteer work if they didn't know there was a safety net, if they didn't know that there were places in their home country that would reach out with open outstretched arms, that if something went wrong, if they were exposed to one of these diseases and needed that critical care, that somebody would say, yeah, send them over. And I would never forgot that conversation. Well, of course, in this period, in this the most intense period of, of Ebola, which was the October, November, December of 14, there were lots of calls for closing the borders, lots of calls for not permitting those who went overseas to help from getting home easily. Some of the most powerful calls were coming from then non-president, not yet president, Donald Trump, but he was not alone. He wasn't the only voice. But 
having reliable pathways for management of those who did fall ill, being able to get home and be cured and cared for, I think became uh, such a powerful psychological tool at keeping hysteria at bay and winning confidence of people that this could be managed. Now, back to your point about the folks coming out of Wuhan and the folks coming out of the, the cruise ship, those were large numbers of people, as I recall, and they were done under very uh, hectic circumstances. It was an urgency. There wasn't a lot of time to prepare very very well, and they had to be managed. Their lives had to be managed pretty carefully. It was difficult. I just wanted you to offer a little bit more reflection on how that experience went and what you learned from that, because that was of a of a different order. It was not. It was a different order of experience, and there was a lot of fear and a lot of reaction. Some in Texas and elsewhere, where populations arrived, without much adequate communications and preparation of the populations. I wanted to hear a bit about how you handle the communications and with the communities in Nebraska. Yeah, so we uh, learned very clearly during actually going back to the Ebola virus days that a proactive response to the media was the, the best place to be. And so we held scheduled press conferences. We were totally transparent, you know, with, and of course, the HIPAA guidelines. But we had a very clear understanding with the patients and their families as to that we were going to be proactive uh, with the public media. We we're going to be proactive with our elective officials, uh, who, of course, were very engaged and with the communities that we served. And so based upon that learning experience, when we were involved with the repatriation from uh, Wuhan City and, of course, from the Diamond Princess, which were quite different because when the individuals from Wuhan City came, that was done in partnership with the National Guard, and they used a barracks facility that we jointly staffed with them on the National Guard property. But when we took the people back from the Diamond Princess, they were all infected. They were all confirmed to be ill with uh, COVID-19. And again, we were very open and very transparent. And, you know, we had proven the concept with Ebola virus disease that the world of biocontainment could be done safely. And I'm very proud to say that, you know, if you go back to uh, our experience with the Diamond Princess passengers and their families, we didn't lose a single one of them and several of them didn't need critical care. We didn't get a single staff member infected. And remember, there was quite a bit of uh, uncertainty at that time about the transmission. You know, we're talking about February 2020, you know, so in the era of this pandemic a long time ago. But we've come a long way in terms of learning about antivirals and learning about other types of therapeutics, monoclonal antibodies, of course, vaccines. We pioneered a lot of the testing, but we also did a lot of research at that time, looking at aerosolized spread, transmission patterns. Uh, we actually did a lot of work on the genotyping and protein constructs of the spike proteins and nucleocapsid proteins of the virus as, as it continued to mutate. We were one of the sites that were very, very involved in the remdesivir trials and still are involved in that. I did a lot of enrollment uh, in that, worked on a number of vaccine trials on all ages of children, uh, as well as uh, on adults, and uh, have just done a lot of work in the area of, you know, training and uh, what we call playbooks, which have to do with how to keep the meatpacking industry 
functional, how to keep the K-12 schools functional. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands of universities and colleges worldwide who've used our materials as playbooks to maintain their business continuity to the best of their ability to do so. So the, you know, as, as you said, Steve, the there were certainly a number of public naysayers, you know, why us, why here, why now? But as this pandemic rapidly started to spread across the entire United States, including here in Nebraska, at the end of the day, what most folks said is, you know, let's thank our lucky stars that a place like UNMC exists that has that expertise that when and if their loved one needed to be cared for, that they know that that facility exists and that the other facilities in the in the country, but also in the state, have access to our expertise. You look at the uh, you know, the pandemic mortality rates, case fatality rates for the state of Nebraska, they are among the very lowest in the United States. And a lot of that had to do with our proactive outreach to long-term care facilities, senior living facilities, uh, the work that we did with our our so-called SWAT teams for monoclonal antibodies to keep people out of hospitals and, uh, you know, in their residential communities. And as a result of that, you know, had not only some of the lowest mortality rates thus far, and I keep saying thus far, but also some of the best preservation of our K-12 school attendance, the best preservation of our universities. You know, you look at the University of Nebraska system writ large, I mean, we're actually one of the few systems that saw almost perfectly retained enrollment during this period, whereas overall, U.S.-wide, you know, undergraduate enrollment's down by the millions. You look at our economics. I mean, we had one of the best preserved economic forecasts and structures over the period of the pandemic. And a lot of that had to do with the partnership with the state, uh, the partnership with the local public health departments, and of course, the partnership with the university. The UNMC has, um, it seems to me, acquired a statewide, a pretty unusual prestige and voice in these matters. And I think some of what you've talked about in terms of your ability to convey knowledge and best practices and inform the public contributed to these things like lower fatality rates and the like, better care, better informed citizenry. Do you think it also helped as you look back at deep at, at avoiding the sort of toxic polarization and politicization of many of the interventions. I mean, in 2021, I think many of us were quite disturbed and surprised to see how rapidly almost every of one of the tools that are in the toolkit for the response for mitigating the threat and risks of COVID-19 became very politicized. And the move towards mandates, of course, fueled much of this and added even more energy to the debates and the like. Do you feel like UNMC's influence and voice helped moderate that and have less polarization within Nebraska? So it's very difficult to quantify the degree of polarization. Nebraska is a 500-mile-wide state, two time zones. The majority geographically are farming and ranching rural communities. And, uh, you know, uh, I would be naive to say that there's not significant political polarization in Nebraska, as there is in just about every state. It varies, of course, greatly uh, which side of the spectrum that individuals are on. But we have taken the approach uh, that we don't govern, we don't make policy for the state or for the city or for the county or any of the local public health districts, but we have advised and we've advised to the best of our ability 
based on the science. And of course, as you know, you well know, the science continues to evolve. What we believe to be true today changes tomorrow. And we have to be flexible enough to say that and to continue to move with what the science continues to show us. And we continue to learn from this experience on a daily basis. But I do believe that that trusted voice of science-based care has been very helpful. And oh, it's Sometimes it falls on deaf ears that, you know, some people believe what they want to believe. You know, I've been in multiple public forums where we've had an opportunity to talk about vaccines and antivirals and testing and use of masks and things of that nature. And I've heard every possible aspect of that spectrum. You know, as uh, you may know, we do a weekly live television show broadcast through the Rural Television Network, literally coast to coast, meant to support the knowledge and wellness of our farming and ranching communities in the United States. And uh, a good chunk of the show is on audience call-in. And, you know, and I listen to the entire political spectrum, if you will, and always come back to, you know, thank you so much for calling in. I understand what you're saying. However, this is what the science says, and that's how we make our decisions. And that your decision should be made always in the context of what the science shows and what is best for you in your community. And that has resonated. And whether we are less polarized as a result of the voice or not, very hard for me to judge, but we keep trying. Well, it's your story, it seems to me, is one that we've seen repeated across the United States and in many other countries where experts in the public health and biomedical communities have been moved into a much higher profile public communications role in the midst of this pandemic and become terribly important. Some have done better, performed better than others, but it's 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 required, you know, refinement of skills and communication. It's required navigating such a divided political environment and trying to bring across in a sympathetic and civil way uh, what we know and what we don't know and listen to people carefully. Um, it's a very it's very interesting to hear that story. I want to talk to you in the minutes that we have left about the future. You know, the Biden administration is is trying very hard to get Congress and the American public oriented around what it may take to build the kinds of capacities that we need for R&D, for surveillance, for data management, for broad preparedness for the future. They put a 88 billion dollar five-year mandatory budget element within FY23 request that would size out at 16 or 17 billion a year additional monies on top of the the regular budget. We'll see how that fares in Congress. But certainly from the Washington standpoint, and I, I'm sure from where you sit, this is a major moment in thinking about what next to protect ourselves and build our capacity. So I wanted to ask you what is next for UNMC in your mind, if you can build the support, political support, find the resources and, and do a multi-year long range plan? What would that look like for UNMC? You know, Steve, I get asked all the time uh, about that future question. And I reflect on, you know, what I think would be the biggest tragedy from this pandemic. And in spite of an incredible amount of loss of life and livelihood and disruption of our society, the biggest tragedy would be to not learn from these experiences and to have to reinvent this in the future. As a wise person once told me, Jeff, you know, the only thing we know about this pandemic for 100% certainty 
is that it's not going to be the last one. And so there is an opportunity now before us to work with the Department of Defense, Department of Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, the VA and others to build what I refer to effectively as surge capacity, surge capacity in workforce, surge capacity in supply chain, surge capacity in communications and infrastructure technology, and surge capacity in physical beds. And if we bring the private sector together with the public sector and we meld those needs, you know, you think about it, there are 28,000 some odd American servicemen uh, and women uh, in South Korea. If there was uh, an event that occurred there, either a nuclear event or a chemical event or a biological event, how are we going to repatriate those people? Where are they going to go? Do our Department of Defense facilities or our veterans facilities or our private sector have the capacity? And a lot of research has been done on that exact question, pioneered not only by the respective departments, but also by the National Academy of Medicine. And uh, long and the short of it is we don't have that capacity. And we've proven that uh, with all things COVID. We've, you know, essentially, at least for up during the various surges, disabled to a large extent, the American medical care delivery system, and not just from the physical beds in hospitals, but from the workforce perspective, from the supply chain perspective, et cetera. So we have an opportunity now to develop multiple sites, multiple locations across the U.S. that would have the facilities, the access to the workforce, the supply chains, et cetera, that could rapidly ramp up in a carefully controlled, carefully integrated fashion in partnership with our federal government in partnership with our state and local governments and the private sector to build that capacity. And that's what I think the White House sees ahead of us. And that's what we've been spending a lot of time in the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill and in various departments and agencies answering the question of how can we here in the state of Nebraska, here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, be an effective partner to do that because you know we're uniquely located geographically we're uniquely located with workforce supply chain communications etc and have proven the concept is that when you break down the public and private barriers you can do more and hopefully we'll do that is this vision something that you feel is very strongly supported at the level of your governor your two senators your house delegation without a doubt but also supported in law I mean, if you go back to the 2020, 2021, and now the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, the uh, authorization for this public-private partnership uh, and multiple demonstration sites of which we've been selected as one such demonstration site have been embedded in the law of the land. It now comes down to the question of does our federal government have the capability to literally partner and place real resources, human resources, fiscal resources, supply resources into a partnership with large university systems and healthcare organizations to develop this capacity. And, uh, you know, I would say all the lights are green at this time in the sense that there's a, a lot of energy. I just hope that there's not so much distraction that occurs on the political scene, the upcoming election cycles, the, uh, of course, the tragic conflict in Ukraine and and add all the rest of those things together, that it becomes a distraction of time, talent, and resources that could otherwise be put into a definitive long-term and sustainable solution to pandemic. And not just, you know, it's not just 
pandemic, uh, Steve. It's, you know, what if there's a major chemical spill or what if there's a nuclear tragedy or something of that nature? The localized resources deal with that just really are not there today. Thank you. I'm very happy that you mentioned DOD in this equation. I mean, we've done a lot of work on that. Admiral Cullison and I are publishing a paper in another two weeks on the whole question of what next on the DOD contributions here. And it remains very important and oftentimes is weakly understood and not quite fully acknowledged the contributions made, particularly at home during this period. And I'm very happy to hear that they're partnering with you. And I'm happy to hear that there's unity among the leadership there in the state and among the population in support of this idea of taking things to the next stage and going from the pilot site to a long-term permanent surge capacity site that's all hazards, that treats all of the different possible threats coming your way. In closing, we, we like to ask all of our guests to offer a few thoughts on just what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this period. You know, I would say it's the future generation that I have a chance to interact with every day, and not just those that are enrolled in med school or nursing or pharmacy or public health or dentistry, et cetera. It's high school students, college students that I get to interact with. The energy level, the creativity, the commitment to the future is as strong as I've ever seen it. The humanism and altruism that I see in our graduating health profession students is stronger than I've ever seen it as well. So I am really optimistic about the future, but pragmatic enough to know that we need to control it. You know, as Abraham Lincoln once said, the only way to really see the future is to build it. We have a unique opportunity to build it together. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today to have this really rich and quite inspiring conversation. And congratulations on all of the great achievements of UNMC under your leadership and with a remarkable array of talent that's been mobilized for these purposes. So thank you. And uh, I hope we'll be able to come back to you again in the future to catch up on what's happening there. I'd enjoy that very much. And I truly appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.